how you see God is the most important thing about you. Because how you see God determines how you relate to him, how you talk to him, how you interact with him. Um, and, and so I, my goal has to always been to take you as a church to the right mountain. And what I mean by that is Hebrews 12 tells us that there are two mountains that people go to. They go to the mountain of the old, the Mount Sinai, where God gave the law to Israel. Or they go to Mount Zion, the city of God, where the angels of God are, and Jesus Christ, the mediator, is. And it's never been my goal to be a pastor that goes up to the mountain and delivers messages to you from the mountain. My goal is to take you to the mountain so you can talk to the mediator <laughs> of your covenant yourself. And uh, my goal is honestly to get as far out of the way as I possibly can. And so I want you to go to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to be reading a little bit from the King James Version because, again, language interpretation is so important. And I believe that the King James Version says this in a way that is more in line with the original language. And I'll, we'll talk about that today. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, after seeing the multitudes, he goes up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, and he goes in to tell them, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. He continues to give them these blessings that are on people that are pure in heart, that are merciful, that are peacemakers, and he's, he's saying incredible statements that are the cornerstone of so much of what we believe. Blessed are ye when men revile you and persecute you, verse 11 says, and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Verse 13 says you are the salt of the earth. The salt, what, if, what good is it if it loses its, its flavor? I love all of this, but verse uh, 17 is where I want to jump in because I think verse 17 is where the disconnect begins. Verse 17, Jesus says this, do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And then he goes on to make these powerful declarations. He says, whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. I think it's interesting there that people who don't teach them correctly or live correctly by them are not excluded from the kingdom of heaven, but they are actually least in the kingdom of heaven. That's an interesting thought to me. We're not even going to talk about that today. We're basically going to deal with, with two words. I want to deal with the word destroy and fulfill. Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, but I came to fulfill the law. Verse 21, he goes on to say, so you have heard it said. And the reason he says I didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it, because a lot of the stuff I'm getting ready to say to you is going to sound like I'm here to destroy it. But I'm not here to destroy it. I'm here to fulfill it. And I think if we're really going to properly understand what Jesus is talking about, we need to understand what destroy and fulfill means. 
This is extremely, extremely important. This is the first message that Jesus teaches. His everything that we believe about him hinges on what he means by destroy and fulfill. So let's pray. Father, we need your help. Because one of the things that keeps us from knowing you as closely as we should is misunderstanding you. So help us today to see you correctly so we can follow you closely. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said amen. amen. So first of all, let's deal with the word destroy. It's, it's translated destroy in our English language. And our English language says that the word destroy is defined this way. It's to put an end to the existence of something by damaging it or attacking it. If you go to Google, this is a simple search. You can go destroy, define. Up pops this definition. It's Webster's definition. says that it means to eliminate, to get rid of by damaging or attacking. How many of you have heard the word abolish used there? So if you read an NIV or a New Living Translation, it uses the word abolish. And I have a massive problem with the translation of the Greek word into abolish. Because the word abolish means, in our English language, it means to put an end to a system, practice, or institution. That's what the word abolish means. So when you read the King James Version of the Bible, you see the word destroy. That is literally the most accurate word you could use to describe the Greek word that is there so that we can determine what Jesus is saying. And this is important because if, if you don't read it correctly, you'll go to Ephesians chapter 2. And in Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible says this, For He is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall. He broke down the partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances. So which is it? Did Jesus come to abolish the commands or didn't he? Ephesians says he did. Matthew says he didn't. But it's not a matter of the actual Greek words that are used there. It's a matter of translation. Can I tell you, every contradiction that you see in the Bible is an issue of context or translation. Okay, I'm, I'm trying to help you. This, this might take a minute, okay? So stick with me. If you're tempted to get up and walk out, I'm literally only saying what the Bible says right now. So this is why, because this word has been mistranslated in so many of our modern translations, like the NIV and the NLT, this word has been mistranslated. And so what happens to us is we misunderstand what Jesus says when he says, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And that word abolish getting in there muddies the whole text. Because the word abolished, all it means is that to put an end, to formally put an end to a system. That's what it means in our English language. 
The word destroy is more accurate because it means to tear something down by attacking it. So Jesus is saying, I did not come to tear down the law by attacking it. Ephesians says, I came to put an end to it to give you a new law. Okay. All right. This must be what it felt like for my English teachers in school. It's like, what is happening right now? The word fulfill in the Greek is the word pleru, pleruo. I think there's an O at the end of it. It means this. So when Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy, but I came to fulfill, the Greek word means this, to satisfy, satisfy, to finish, to complete, to end. So when people tell you that Jesus didn't come to bring an end to the law, they're actually not telling you the truth of what Jesus said. They are actually giving you that information based on a bad translation of the Bible. He meant destroy, not abolish. This is really, really important. This is massively important. Because what we have in modern American Christianity is a hybrid version of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. What we have in most churches today is a covenant that we have come up with our own that combines our favorite parts of the New and our favorite parts of the Old that we are now the mediator of. And Paul says anybody who preaches a mixed gospel is actually under a curse. This is why this is important. Oh my God, this is so important. The word fulfill is the Greek word, which means to satisfy, complete, finish, or end. It's also described, it's also used to describe how Jesus made good on the promises of the prophets. So for instance, in Matthew chapter 2, Verse 23, the Bible says that he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. So when Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law, he means I came to put an end to it, and I came to make good on the promises of the prophets. He does not mean that I came to to destroy it. He also does not mean that I came to keep it. Because he's literally in the gospel of Mark going to change it. To change it and to destroy it are two different things. This is why language is so, so important. So remember, I'm, I'm laying this as a foundation for you. Every theological controversy or contradiction you see in scripture is an issue of context or translation. The Bible is the word of God without question. So if there is an issue that you see in Scripture theologically, it's either a context issue or a translation issue, not a God issue. (laughs) Let me give you one for for all the people who are like, there are no contradictions in the Bible. Let me let me. Let me help you with that. What people mean very often when they say that is that some of the stories aren't repeated the same, even in the Gospels. 
So, for instance, in Matthew chapter 8, the Bible says that Jesus came across this lake and he lands on the other side and it says two demon-possessed men came to him. Well, in Mark chapter 5, the same story is being taught and it says one demon-possessed man came to him. Which one is it? One or two? I don't care. (laughs) The theology of the story is still correct. Jesus has power over the devil. If it's one, great. If it's two, even better. Oh, man. So the fact that there are things that seem contradictory does not undermine the authority of Scripture. Because the theology is correct. If the theology isn't correct, it's because King James and NIV don't agree. Okay. All right. I'm just, I'm really, really trying to help you. And, and I'm not saying in the room today, I'm not like, hey, we're all going back to the KJV because there's some stuff in the KJV that I'm really concerned about. There's a verse in the Old Testament that says the gospel will be preached and great is the company of women that will declare it. King James Version left that great is the company of women out. Anyhow, I'm just trying to help somebody. <laughs> So the fact that the translators made some mistake does not, does not mean that Paul made a mistake while he was writing the Bible. Oh, man, because a lot of people are like, I just can't. I, if, 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 if there's two guys instead of one guy, that means the whole Bible's wrong. Why are you acting so childish? It's people telling the same story over hundreds and hundreds of years from different continents and places telling it from their personal perspective, from the perspective of others. And sometimes they're going to get, hey, one guy was there or two guys was, were there. But the theology of Matthew 8 and the theology of Mark chapter 5 are the same. Jesus has authority over the power of the devil. All right. Jesus actually had a very interesting relationship with the Old Testament. Very interesting. The the Bible says in Leviticus chapter 11 that God gives these laws concerning food to Moses and the people. In Leviticus chapter 11, it lists these dietary restrictions that God gave the nation of Israel. Listen to what the dietary laws included. (laughs) We're all going to hell. The dietary laws included (laughs) prohibitions against eating pork, shrimp, shellfish, most types of seafood. I'm good with the insects part. Scavenger birds, never desired one of those, and various other animals. Watch what Jesus does in Mark chapter 7. Again, Jesus called to the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered into the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. He said, are you so dull? I love Jesus. He asked, do you, need, do you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart. You don't, well, bacon might, but into their stomach. <laughs> and then out of the body. Look at what the Bible says. In this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Hold up. But I, I was told Jesus came to fulfill, to keep all of the Old Testament. Ah, you misunderstood what he's saying. 
when he says, I did not come to destroy. He didn't come to say, you see that law right there? Destroyed. He said, you see that law right there? It no longer applies. Here's a new one. He didn't destroy it. He gave them a new one. Because the intent was to give them a new covenant that had nothing to do with the old covenant. Ah, this is good. If you don't like this, you don't like Jesus, because that's what Jesus said. So when Jesus says, I came to fulfill it, it does not mean that he kept it. He replaced it. The word fulfilled does not mean to keep. It means to satisfy, to end. Jesus, the only one who had the authority to say, hey, you know, Moses' law made a big deal about what you ate. No more. Nothing that goes into the body defiles a man. And the Bible says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He didn't destroy the law. He replaced it with a new one. He brought that one to an end. For instance, we use this term when we talk about slavery. What do we use? We use the term abolished. Slavery wasn't destroyed. You still have the hundreds and hundreds of years of human history of slavery. He didn't undo slavery when... We didn't undo it when we abolished it. We created a new law to end the old one. That's the proper use of the word abolish. So if we are actually reading our Bible correctly and using our English language correctly, Jesus did come to abolish. He came to put the old to an end to establish a new. Again, you're like, Robbie, I don't believe that. I'm not asking you to believe me. I'm asking you to listen to Jesus. Again, Ephesians chapter, I haven't even gotten out of the first paragraph of my notes. Ephesians <laughs> chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, yeah, verses 14 and 15. He is our peace, who has made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances. All right. Church, the most embarrassing, the most shameful parts of Christian history have nothing to do with anything Jesus commanded or the apostles taught. Nothing. You cannot claim anything Jesus taught and do anything shameful. Anything harmful. Anything hurtful. The most shameful parts of Christian history and indefensible moments of the church 
have everything to do with Christians leveraging old covenant concepts for their own personal agenda and gain. This is why this is important. From the Crusades to the justification of slavery in America to the murder of a guy who was just trying to get the Bible in the hands of people named William Tyndale. He was, he was murdered by the church because he was trying to translate the Bible for everyday people. And the church didn't, the church didn't, and sometimes now, doesn't want you to go to the right mountain. Because if you go to the Mount Zion where Jesus resides, you get none of this shameful lording, controlling, manipulative, legalistic action in the church. Every time a person has been hurt, they have never been hurt in the name of Jesus. They have been hurt in the name of an old covenant that has been put away. In this country, up until 1967, interracial marriage was illegal. Why? Because the Bible said so, some people thought. Sorry, you misinterpreted the Bible, sir. You used it because you had an agenda. And you hated people and you used the name of God to justify your hate. But God has never wanted you to use his commands to justify hate for anybody. Ever. William Tyndale, he was strangled and burnt alive by the church. You say, well, it wasn't, it wasn't really a church. It was the king of England. Who was in charge of the church? The king. <laughs> oh, man. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul calls this mix and match of old and new a perversion of the gospel and declares that there is a curse on anyone who teaches it. In Galatians chapter 3, he says that how he is shocked at the amount of people who started in the spirit. And he asked him this question, why are you trying to finish in the law what you began in the spirit? And none of this challenges the idea that the Old Testament is God-breathed. The Old Testament is actually God-breathed. It's inspired by God. I thought I'd get a few more amens in, in church. But the Old Testament is a backstory for the main story. I'm not saying that the old and new are not equally inspired. I am saying that they are not equally applicable. The problem I have is this, is that these two covenants are not and were not ever meant to be weaved together as one. The Bible is telling one story with two completely different covenants. Even though the old is at the front of this story, it is at the back of our apologetic. Salvation begins and ends with Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of the living God. <laughs> 
all of the old, listen to me, was a divinely, I can't even believe I wrote these words. All of the old was a divinely orchestrated womb. But when the baby is born, you don't embrace the umbilical cord. Is the umbilical cord necessary? Absolutely. But if you try to survive for the rest of your life, attached to your mama by an umbilical cord, you won't last long. If you, if you think you are, the same, you are in the same condition as you were when you were in the womb, go try to stay in a pool underwater for, as not, for nine months like you did in the water in your mother's womb. You cannot do it. Because even though the womb and the umbilical cord and all of that, the placenta, all of it was necessary. Once the baby is born, however necessary it was, it no longer is a part of the future of the baby. It is new in the sense that it has come from an old system into a new one. And if it tries to operate under the old system, it will die. I'm telling you. All necessary, but temporary. We do this all the time. We do this all the time. We do this with things like tattoos. You're like, okay, it was cool until you got into my favorite commandment. (laughs) We do it all the time. We take the most inconvenient parts of the law and ignore them, and we cherry-pick the parts that are easier for us to keep. Nobody wants to hang on to the old system so they can use it to judge themselves. We want to hang on to the old system so we can use it to judge other people. And so we cherry-pick when the law is incomplete without all of it. In the same way that James said, if you break one, you break them all, you don't get to select one. Your favorite one. So you can hold it over your kids. And I love that no tattoo one. Bless the Lord. Son, don't you know that the word of God says in Leviticus chapter 19 that you shall not mark your body. Father, don't you also know that the Word says, do not eat any meat with blood still in it. <laughs> and you're like, but, 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 no, no, no buts. Every time you go to the Old Testament and you cherry pick a verse that you like and you leave out one that you don't like, you have, you have disrespected at the least the commandment. All right. You know, Leviticus 19 also says, don't cut your hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. I'm in way trouble. I clip my beard and my hair is not growing over my ears this morning. (laughs) I'm in trouble. But you think that you're going to heaven because you didn't get a tattoo. But you out here eating Texas Roadhouse. (laughs) Cool, bro. Cool. 
As a matter of fact, I think more people are actually dying from red meat than tattoos. Just throwing that, just lobbing that one out there to you. <laughs> it's wild, isn't it? How easily we create a hybrid version of the covenants that we are now the mediator of. Paul actually said in 2 Corinthians that the Old Testament can actually blind people to the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 3, verses 13 through 14, he says, we're not like Moses who put a veil over his face. This is what some churches do every single week is they put a veil over what is fading so that they can keep controlling people with what is fading. We don't put a veil over our face that the children of Israel could not see steadfastly and look to the end, watch this again, of that which is abolished. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. Paul is saying when they read the old covenant, it blinds them and dulls their minds to Jesus. Paul never goes, listen, before you're going to preach the gospel to somebody, what you need to do is you need to send them down and you need to convince them that they have broken the Ten Commandments. Nowhere. Paul actually, in the New Testament, uses the Ten Commandments to convince people, but he's using them not to convince them of the gospel, but to convince them of the need for Jesus. Okay. Oh, I only have a minute. What are we doing? <laughs> Listen to what the message translation says about verse 14. Even today, when that proclamation of that old bankrupt government are read out, they can't see through it. Why is this important? This is so important because people are still today trying to relate to God through Moses. This is what the entire book of Hebrews is about. It's written to Jewish people who are trying to, they have created a hybrid version of faith in Jesus. Trying to mix Judaism with Christianity. And somebody says, we need to get back to Judeo-Christian values. No, we just need to get back to the Christian ones. <laughs> I'm going to say something, and it's going to alarm you, but please go read the Bible and discover this for yourself. Not only is like Hebrew says, the old covenant obsolete. As a Gentile person, it never even applied to me. And you're like, well, how do we keep the adulterers in check? And how do we keep homosexuals in check? How do we scare the world? It's not the intention of the gospel. It's to scare the world. It's to let the world know that God loves them. And Jesus, Jesus actually gave us a command that sums up all of your concerns. Jesus said, a new command I give to you. Love each other the way I have loved you. Now listen, if you love people the way Jesus loves people, you will never commit adultery. You will never commit sexual sin. You will never steal. I don't need Ten Commandments on the wall to keep me right. I just need to follow the command of Jesus to love 
everybody the way Jesus has loved me. I don't need a hybrid version of the gospel. Give me the full gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is in every way superior to Moses. I'm sorry, I don't want your hybrid version of the covenant. I want the one Jesus died to give me. Jesus didn't come to help you keep the law of Moses. Jesus came to bring an end to the law of Moses and to destroy the works of the devil so that he could establish a new covenant and a new people. Well, what are we going to do without the Ten Commandments? It's this guy, this man, this part of the Godhead called the Holy Spirit who Jesus said when he comes into the earth, he will convict the world of sin. What are you saying, Robbie? But the Bible says the law is holy. The law is good. I, I agree with all that. I believe it is. The law is perfect in that it did its job perfectly. Like the Bible said as a tutor and handed us off to Jesus. So would you please stop handing people who have been handed off to Jesus back to the tutor? Hebrews 10 and 9, he set aside the first to establish the second. Hebrews 10, 8 says he, he, he uh, Hebrews chapter 10 says he, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you didn't even want, nor were you pleased with them, though they offered them in accordance with the law. That's a wild one. The writer of Hebrews says, you, didn't even, you never even wanted those animal sacrifices. You weren't even ever even pleased with them, even though it's what the law of Moses said to do. Because what you ultimately wanted was something completely different. A perfect sacrifice, a once and for all sacrifice named Jesus. Oh, man, this is really, really good. Jesus said, here am I, I've come to do your will. Verse 9 of Hebrews 10. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Romans 10 and 4 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. I don't know how many more verses I've got to, I've got to read. Hebrews 13 says, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Galatians 5 and 6 says, for in Christ Jesus, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Hebrews 7 says that the former regulation was set aside because it was weak and useless. Why? Because the old covenant was this. God said to them in Exodus, he said, I will if you will. I will protect you. I will bless you. I will be with you if you will. The new covenant is this. I will because you never could. <laughs> and belief in that is how I receive all of the benefits of the new covenant, not by works, but through faith. The Ten Commandments never lifted a finger to help you. They sat back and waited for you to fail. And when you did, they did nothing to speak up for you. 
You had to find a priest and offer a sacrifice, hoping they would atone for your sins, even though Hebrews says they never did. I don't get my morality from the Ten Commandments. I get my morality from Jesus. And whatever Jesus asks me to do, he empowers me to do. Wow. So, Father, help us. I'm not stopping because I'm done. I'm stopping because I literally have to. These, this parking lot's going to be a wild situation. Remember, thou shalt not kill. Okay. Father, we thank you for your word today. Help us as we continue this conversation over the next few weeks. We're, we're just going to go further and further. And we're going to get to a day where we believe in the new covenant so much that we are going to see the dead raised, blind eyes open. We're going to be able to walk in this room and people who are battling cancer, we're going to be saved. Be healed in Jesus' name. Not because I've been great this week, not because I kept all the rules perfectly, but because Jesus died to give this to you. So what, what I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus. Get up. This is all to lead us to the book of Acts where we were birthed in the spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. I love you. Altar is open. I'll see you next week if you dare.